27, Top Ford Brookwell says, all that he did excellently might be bound up in 20 pages, but it should be bound in pure gold. His early poems show the influence of Gray and Blake, especially of the latter. When Coleridge begins his daydream with the line, my eyes make pictures when they're shut, we recall instantly Blake's haunting songs of innocence. But there is this difference between the two poets. In Blake we have only a dreamer, in Coleridge we have the rare combination of the dreamer and the profound scholar. The quality of this early poetry, with its strong suggestion of Blake, may be seen in such poems as A Daydream, The Devil's Thoughts, The Suicide's Argument, and The Wanderings of Cain, his later poems, wherein we see his imagination bridled by thought and study, but still running very freely, may best be appreciated in Kubla Khan, Christabel, and The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It is difficult to criticize such poems, one can only read them and wonder at their melody, and at the vague suggestions which they conjure up in the mind. Kublikon is a fragment, painting a gorgeous oriental dream picture, such as one might see in an October sunset. The whole poem came to Coleridge one morning when he had fallen asleep over a purchase, and upon awakening he began to write hastily. In Xanadu did Kublikon a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf, the sacred river, ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. He was interrupted after fifty-four lines were written, and he never finished the poem. Christabel is also a fragment, which seems to have been planned as the story of a pure young girl who fell under the spell of a sorcerer, in the shape of the woman Geraldine. It is full of a strange melody, and contains many passages of exquisite poetry, but it trembles with a strange, unknown horror and so suggests the supernatural terrors of the popular hysterical novels, to which we have referred. On this account it is not wholesome reading, though one flies in the face of Swinburne and of other critics by venturing to suggest such a thing. The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner is Coleridge's chief contribution to the lyrical ballads of 1798, and is one of the world's masterpieces, though it introduces the reader to a supernatural realm, with a phantom ship, a crew of dead men, the overhanging curse of the albatross, the polar spirit, and the magic breeze, it nevertheless manages to create a sense of absolute reality concerning these manifest absurdities, all the mechanisms of the poem, its meter, rhyme, and melody are perfect, and some of its descriptions of the lonely sea have never been equaled, perhaps we should say suggestions, rather than descriptions, for Coleridge never describes things, but makes a suggestion, all was brief and all was exactly right, and our own imagination instantly supplies the details. It is useless to quote fragments, one must read the entire poem, if he reads nothing else of the romantic school of poetry. Among Coleridge's shorter poems there is a wide variety, and each reader must be left largely to follow his own taste. The beginner will do well to read a few of the early poems, to which we have referred, and then try the Ode to France, Youth and Age, Dejection love poems, fears in solitude, religious musings, work without hope, and the glorious hymn before sunrise in the Vale of Shamoni, one exquisite little poem from the Latin, the Virgin's Cradle Hymn, and his version of Schiller's Wallenstein, show Coleridge's remarkable power as a translator, the latter is one of the best poetical translations in our literature, of Coleridge's prose works, the Biographia, Literaria, or sketches of my literary life and opinions 1817, his collected lectures on Shakespeare 1849, and aids to reflection 1825 are the most interesting from a literary viewpoint.
The first is an explanation and criticism of Wordsworth's theory of poetry, and contains more sound sense and illuminating ideas on the general subject of poetry than any other book in our language. The lectures, as refreshing as a west wind in midsummer, are remarkable for their attempt to sweep away the arbitrary rules which for two centuries had stood in the way of literary criticism of Shakespeare, in order to study the works themselves. No finer analysis and appreciation of the master's genius has ever been written. In his philosophical work Coleridge introduced the idealistic philosophy of Germany into England. He set himself in line with Berkeley, and squarely against Bentham, Malthus, Mill, and all the materialistic tendencies which were and still are the bane of English philosophy. The aids to reflection is Coleridge's most profound work but is more interesting to the student of religion and philosophy than to the readers of literature. Robert Southey 1774-1843 closely associated with Wordsworth and Coleridge's Robert Southey, and the three, on account of their residence in the Northern Lake District, were referred to contemptuously as the Lakers by the Scottish magazine reviewers. Southey holds his place in this group more by personal association than by his literary gifts. He was born at Bristol in 1774, studied at Westminster School, and at Oxford, where he found himself in perpetual conflict with the authorities on account of his independent views. He finally left the university and joined Coleridge in his scheme of a candy Socrates. For more than 50 years he labored steadily at literature, refusing to consider any other occupation. He considered himself seriously as one of the greatest writers of the day and a reading of his ballads which connected him at once with the Romantic school leads us to think that, had he written less, he might possibly have justified his own opinion of himself. Unfortunately he could not wait for inspiration, being obliged to support not only his own family but also, in large measure, that of his friend Coleridge. Southey gradually surrounded himself with one of the most extensive libraries in England, and set himself to the task of writing something every working day. The results of his industry were 109 volumes, besides some 150 articles for the magazines, most of which are now utterly forgotten. His most ambitious poems are Thalaba, A Tale of Arabian Enchantment, The Curse of Kahana, A Medley of Hindu Mythology, Matic, A Legend of a Welsh Prince Who Discovered the Western World, and Roderick, A Tale of the Last of the Goths. All these, and many more, although containing some excellent passages, are on the whole exaggerated and unreal, both in manner and in matter. Southey wrote far better prose than poetry, and his admirable life of Nelson is still often read. Besides these are his lives of British admirals, his lives of Cooper and Wesley, and his histories of Brazil and of the Peninsular War. Southey was made Poet Laureate in 1813, and was the first to raise that office from the lowest state into which it had fallen since the death of Dryden. The opening lines of Thalabaugh beginning, how beautiful is night, a dewy freshness fills the silent air, are still sometimes quoted, and a few of his best-known short poems, like, The Scholar, Old Clutes, The Well of St. Cain, The Inchcape Rock, and, Lodor, will repay the curious reader, the beauty of Southey's character, his patience and helpfulness, make him a word or the associate of the two greater poets with whom he is generally named. Walter Scott 1771-1832 We have already called attention to two significant movements of the 18th century, which we must for a moment recall if we are to appreciate Scott, not simply as a delightful teller of tales, but as a tremendous force in modern literature. 
the first is the triumph of romantic poetry in Wordsworth and Coleridge, the second is the success of our first English novelists, and the popularization of literature by taking it from the control of a few patrons and critics and putting it into the hands of the people as one of the forces which mold our modern life. Scott is an epitome of both these movements. The poetry of Wordsworth and Coleridge was read by a select few, but Scott's Marmion and Lady of the Lake aroused a whole nation to enthusiasm, and for the first time romantic poetry became really popular. So also the novel had been content to paint men and women of the present, until the wonderful series of Waverly novels appeared, when suddenly, by the magic of this Wizard of the North, all history seemed changed. The past, which had hitherto appeared as a dreary region of dead heroes, became alive again, and filled with a multitude of men and women who had the surprising charm of reality. It is of small consequence that Scott's poetry and prose are both faulty, that his poems are read chiefly for the story, rather than for their poetic excellence, and that much of the evident crudity and barbarism of the Middle Ages is ignored or forgotten in Scott's writings, by their vigor, their freshness, their rapid action, and their breezy, out-of-door atmosphere. Scott's novels attracted thousands of readers who else had known nothing of the delights of literature. He island therefore, the greatest known factor in establishing and in popularizing that romantic element in prose and poetry which has been for a hundred years the chief characteristic of our literature. Life. Scott was born in Edinburgh, on August 15, 1771. On both his mother's and father's side he was descended from old border families distinguished more for their feuds and fighting than for their intellectual attainments. His father was a barrister, a just man, who often lost clients by advising them to be, first of all, honest in their lawsuits. His mother was a woman of character and education, strongly imaginative, a teller of tales which stirred young Walter's enthusiasm by revealing the past as a world of living heroes. As a child, Scott was lame and delicate and was therefore sent away from the city to be with his grandmother in the open country at Sandino, in Roxburghshire, near the Tweed. This grandmother was a perfect treasure house of legends concerning the old border feuds. From her wonderful tale Scott developed that intense love of Scottish history and tradition which characterizes all his work. By the time he was eight years old, when he returned to Edinburgh, Scott's tastes were fixed for life. At the high school he was a fair scholar but without enthusiasm, being more interested in border stories than in the textbooks. He remained at school only six or seven years, and then entered his father's office to study law, at the same time attending lectures at the university. He kept this up for some six years without developing any interest in his profession, not even when he passed his examinations and was admitted to the bar, in 1792, after 19 years of desultory work in which he showed far more zeal in gathering Highland legends than in gaining clients. He had won two small illegal offices which gave him enough income to support him comfortably. His home, meanwhile, was at Ashestiel on the Tweed, where all his best poetry was written. Scott's literary work began with the translation from the German of Berger's romantic ballad of Lenore 1796 and of Goethe's Goetz von Berlichin in 1799, but there was romance enough in his own loved Highlands and in 1802-1803 appeared three volumes of his Minstrelsy of the Scottish Border, which he had been collecting for many years. In 1805, when Scott was 34 years old, appeared his first original work, The Lay of the Last Minstrel. Its success was immediate, 
and when Marmion 1808 and the Lady of the Lake 1810 aroused Scotland and England to intense enthusiasm, and brought an expected fame to the author, without in the least spoiling his honest and lovable nature, Scott gladly resolved to abandon the law, in which he had won scant success, and give himself wholly to literature, unfortunately, however, in order to increase his earnings, he entered secretly into partnership with the firms of Constable and the Brothers Ballantyne, as printer-publishers, a sad mistake, indeed, and the cause of that tragedy which closed the life of Scotland's greatest writer, the year 1811 is remarkable for two things in Scott's life, in this year he seems to have realized that, notwithstanding the success of his poems, he had not yet found himself that he was not a poetic genius, like Burns, that in his first three poems he had practically exhausted his material, though he still continued to write verse, and that, if he was to keep his popularity, he must find some other work. The fact that, only a year later, Myron suddenly became the popular favorite, shows how correctly Scott had judged himself and the reading public, which was even more fickle than usual in this emotional age. In that same year, 1811, Scott bought the estate of Abbotsford, on the Tweed, with which place his name is forever associated. Here he began to spend large sums, and to dispense the generous hospitality of a Scotch laird, of which he had been dreaming for years. In 1820 he was made a baronet, and his new title of Sir Walter came nearer to turning his honest head than had all his literary success. His business partnership was kept secret, and during all the years when the Waverley novels were the most popular books in the world, their authorship remained unknown, for Scott deemed it beneath the dignity of his title to earn money by business or literature and sought to give the impression that the enormous sums spent at Abbotsford in improving the estate and in entertaining lavishly were a part of the dignity of the position and came from ancestral sources. It was the success of Byron's Child Herald, and the comparative failure of Scott's later poems, Ropey, The Bridal of Tryermaine, and The Lord of the Isles, which led our author into the new field, where he was to be without a rival, rummaging through a cabinet one day in search of some fishing tackle. Scott found the manuscript of a story which he had begun and laid aside nine years before. He read this old story eagerly, as if it had been another's work, finished it within three weeks, and published it without signing his name. The success of this first novel, Waverly 1814, was immediate and unexpected. Its great sales and the general chorus of praise for its unknown author were without precedent, and when Guy Mannering, The Antiquary, Black Dwarf, Old Mortality, Rob Roy, and the heart of Midlothian appeared within the next four years. England's delight and wonder knew no bounds, not only at home, but also on the continent. Large numbers of these fresh and fascinating stories were sold as fast as they could be printed. During the 17 years which followed the appearance of Waverley, Scott wrote on an average nearly two novels per year, creating an unusual number of characters and illustrating many periods of Scotch, English, and French history from the time of the Crusades to the fall of the Stuarts. In addition to these historical novels, he wrote tales of a grandfather, demonology and witchcraft, biographies of Dryden and of Swift, the life of Napoleon, in nine volumes, and a large number of articles for the reviews and magazines. It was an extraordinary amount of literary work, but it was not quite so rapid and spontaneous as it seemed. He had been very diligent in looking up old records, and we must remember that. In nearly all his poems and novels, Scott was drawing upon a fund of legend, 
tradition, history, and poetry, which he had been gathering for forty years, and which his memory enabled him to produce at will with almost the accuracy of an encyclopedia. For the first six years Scott held himself to Scottish history, giving us in nine remarkable novels the whole of Scotland, its heroism, its superb faith and enthusiasm, and especially its clannish loyalty to its hereditary chiefs, giving us also all parties and characters, from covenanters to royalists, and from kings to beggars. After reading these nine volumes we know Scotland and Scotchmen as we can know them in no other way. In 1819 he turned abruptly from Scotland, and in Ivanhoe, the most popular of his works, showed what a mine of neglected wealth lay just beneath the surface of English history. It is hard to realize now, as we read its rapid, melodramatic action, its vivid portrayal of Saxon and Norman character, and all its picturesque details, that it was written rapidly, at a time when the author was suffering from disease and could hardly repress an occasional groan from finding its way into the rapid dictation. It stands today as the best example of the author's own theory that the will of a man is enough to hold him steadily, against all obstacles, to the task of doing what he has a mind to do. Kenilworth, Nigel, Haverhill, and Woodstock, all written in the next few years, show his grasp of the romantic side of English annals. Count Robert and the Talisman show his enthusiasm for the heroic side of the Crusader's nature and Quentin Burdeward and Anne of Geierstein suggest another mine of romance which he discovered in French history. For twenty years Scott labored steadily at literature, with the double object of giving what was in him, and of earning large sums to support the lavish display which he deemed essential to a laird of Scotland. In 1826, while he was blithely at work on Woodstock, the crash came. Not even the vast earnings of all these popular novels could longer keep the wretched business of Ballantyne on its feet, and the firm failed. After years of mismanagement, though a silent partner, Scott assumed full responsibility, and at fifty-five years of age, sick, suffering, and with all his best work behind him, he found himself facing a debt of over half a million dollars. The firm could easily have compromised with its creditors. But Scott refused to hear of bankruptcy laws under which he could have taken refuge. He assumed the entire debt as a personal one, and set resolutely to work to pay every penny. Times were indeed changed in England when, instead of a literary genius starving until some wealthy patron gave him a pension, this man, aided by his pen alone, could confidently begin to earn that enormous amount of money, and this is one of the unnoticed results of the popularization of literature. Without a doubt Scott would have accomplished the task, had he been granted only a few years of health. He still lived at Abbotsford, which he had offered to his creditors, but which they generously refused to accept, and in two years, by miscellaneous work, had paid some $200,000 of his debt, nearly half of this sum coming from his life of Napoleon. A new edition of the Waverly novels appeared, which was very successful financially and Scott had every reason to hope that he would soon face the world owing no man a penny, when he suddenly broke under the strain. In 1830 occurred a stroke of paralysis from which he never fully recovered, though after a little time he was again at work, dictating with splendid patience and resolution. He writes in his diary at this time, The blow is a stunning one, I suppose, for I scarcely feel it. It is singular, but it comes with as little surprise as if I had a remedy ready. Yet God knows I am at sea in the dark, and the vessel leaky. It is good to remember that governments are not always ungrateful, and to record that, 
when it became known that a voyage to Italy might improve Scott's health, the British government promptly placed a naval vessel at the disposal of a man who had led no armies to the slaughter, but had only given pleasure to multitudes of peaceable men and women by his stories. He visited Malta, Naples, and Rome, but in his heart he longed for Scotland, and turned homeward after a few months of exile. The River Tweed, the Scotch Hills, the trees of Abbotsford, the joyous clamor of his dogs, brought forth the first exclamation of delight which had passed Scott's lips since he sailed away. He died in September of the same year, 1832, and was buried with his ancestors in the old Dryburg Abbey. Works of Scott. Scott's work is of a kind which the critic gladly passes over, leaving each reader to his own joyous and uninstructed opinion. From a literary viewpoint the works are faulty enough. If one is looking for faults, but it is well to remember that they were intended to give delight, and that they rarely fail of their object. When one has read the stirring Marmion or the more enduring Lady of the Lake, felt the heroism of the Crusaders in the Talisman, the picturesqueness of chivalry in Ivanhoe, the nobleness of soul of a Scotch peasant girl in the heart of Midlothian, and the quality of Scotch faith in old mortality, then his own opinion of Scott's genius will be of more value than all the criticisms that have ever been written. At the outset we must confess frankly that Scott's poetry is not artistic, in the highest sense, and that it lacks the deeply imaginative and suggestive qualities which make a poem the noblest and most enduring work of humanity. We read it now, not for its poetic excellence, but for its absorbing story interest. Even so, it serves an admirable purpose. Marmion and the Lady of the Lake, which are often the first long poems read by the beginner in literature, almost invariably lead to a deeper interest in the subject, and many readers owe to these poems an introduction to the delights of poetry. They are an excellent beginning, therefore, for young readers, since they are almost certain to hold the attention, and to lead indirectly to an interest in other and better poems. Aside from this, Scott's poetry is marked by vigor and youthful abandon, its interest lies in its vivid pictures, its heroic characters and especially in its rapid action and succession of adventures, which hold and delight us still, as they held and delighted the first wandering readers, and one finds here and there terse descriptions, or snatches of song and ballad, like the Boat Song and Low Kinvar, which are among the best known in our literature. In his novel Scott plainly wrote too rapidly and too much, while a genius of the first magnitude, the definition of genius as the infinite capacity for taking pains hardly belongs to him, for details of life and history, for finely drawn characters, and for tracing the logical consequences of human action. He has usually no inclination. He sketches a character roughly, plunges him into the midst of stirring incidents, and the action of the story carries us on breathlessly to the end. So his stories are largely adventure stories, at the best and it is this element of adventure and glorious action, rather than the study of character, which makes Scott a perennial favorite of the young. The same element of excitement is what causes mature readers to turn from Scott to better novelists, who have more power to delineate human character, and to create, or discover, a romantic interest in the incidents of everyday life rather than in stirring adventure. Notwithstanding these limitations, it is well especially in these days, when we hear that Scott is outgrown to emphasize for noteworthy things that he accomplished, when he created the historical novel, and all novelists of the last century who draw upon history for their characters and events are followers of Scott and acknowledge his mastery, to his novels are on a vast scale, 
covering a very wide range of action, and are concerned with public rather than with private interests. So, with the exception of The Bride of Lammermoor, the love story in his novels is generally pale and feeble, but the strife and passions of big parties are magnificently portrayed. A glance over even the titles of his novels shows how the heroic side of history for over 600 years finds expression in his pages, and all the parties of these six centuries crusaders, covenanters, cavaliers, roundheads, papists, Jews, gypsies, rebels start into life again, and fight or give a reason for the faith that is in them. No other novelist in England, and only Balzac in France, approaches Scott in the scope of his narratives. Three Scott was the first novelist in any language to make the scene an essential element in the action. He knew Scotland, and loved it, and there is hardly an event in any of his Scottish novels in which we do not breathe the very atmosphere of the place, and feel the presence of its moors and mountains. The place, moreover, is usually so well chosen and described that the action seems almost to be the result of natural environment. Perhaps the most striking illustration of this harmony between scene and incident is found in Old Mortality, where Morton approaches the cave of the Old Covenanter, and where the spiritual terror inspired by the fanatic's struggle with imaginary fiends is paralleled by the physical terror of a gulf and a roaring flood spanned by a slippery tree trunk. A second illustration of the same harmony of scene and incident is found in the meeting of the arms and ideals of the East and West, when the two champions fight in the burning desert and then eat bread together in the cool shade of the oasis, as described in the opening chapter of The Talisman. A third illustration is found in that fascinating love scene, where Ivanhoe lies wounded, raging at his helplessness, while the gentle Rebecca alternately hides and reveals her love as she describes the terrific assault on the castle, which goes on beneath her window. His thoughts are all on the fight, hers on the man she loves, and both are natural and both are exactly what we expect under the circumstances. These are but striking examples of the fact that, in all his work, Scott tries to preserve perfect harmony between the scene and the action. For Scott's chief claim to greatness lies in the fact that he was the first novelist to recreate the past, that he changed our whole conception of history by making it to be, not a record of dry facts, but a stage on which living men and women played their parts. Carlyle's criticism is here most pertinent, these historical novels have taught this truth, and known to writers of history, that the bygone ages of the world were actually filled by living men, not by protocols, state papers, controversies, and abstractions of men, not only the pages of history, but all the hills and vales of his beloved Scotland are filled with living characters, lords and ladies, soldiers, pirates, gypsies, preachers, schoolmasters, clansmen, bailiffs, dependents, all Scotland is here before our eyes, in the reality of life itself, it is astonishing, with his large numbers of characters, that Scott never repeats himself, naturally he is most at home in Scotland, and with humble people, Scott's own romantic interest in feudalism caused him to make his lords altogether too lordly, his aristocratic maidens are usually bloodless, conventional, exasperating creatures, who talk like books and pose like figures in an old tapestry. But when he describes characters like Jeannie Deans, in the heart of Midlothian, and the old clansman, Evandu, in Waverley, we know the very soul of Scotch womanhood and manhood. Perhaps one thing more should be said, or rather repeated, of Scott's enduring work. He is always sane, wholesome, manly, inspiring. We know the essential nobility of human life better 
and we are better men and women ourselves, because of what he has written. George Gordon, Lord Byron 1788-1824 There are two distinct sides to Byron and his poetry, one good, the other bad, and those who write about him generally describe one side or the other in superlatives. Thus one critic speaks of his splendid and imperishable excellence of sincerity and strength, another of his gaudy charlatanry, blare of brass, and big bowlishness, as both critics are fundamentally right. We shall not here attempt to reconcile their differences, which arise from viewing one side of the man's nature and poetry to the exclusion of the other. Before his exile from England, in 1816, the general impression made by Byron is that of a man who leads an irregular life poses as a romantic hero, makes himself out much worse than he really island and takes delight in shocking not only the conventions but the ideals of English society. His poetry of this first period is generally, though not always, shallow and insincere in thought, and declamatory or bombastic in expression. After his exile, and his meeting with Shelley in Italy, we note a gradual improvement, due partly to Shelley's influence and partly to his own mature thought and experience. We have the impression now of a disillusioned man who recognizes his true character, and who, though cynical and pessimistic, is at least honest in his unhappy outlook on society. His poetry of this period is generally less shallow and rhetorical, and though he still parades his feelings in public, he often surprises us by being manly and sincere. Thus in the third canto of Child Harold, written just after his exile, he says, In my youth summer I did sing of one the wandering outlaw of his own dark mind, and as we read on to the end of the splendid fourth canto with its poetic feeling for nature, and its stirring rhythm that grips and holds the reader like martial music we lay down the book with profound regret that this gifted man should have devoted so much of his talent to describing trivial or unwholesome intrigues and posing as the hero of his own verses. The real tragedy of Byron's life is that he died just as he was beginning to find himself. Life. Byron was born in London in 1788, the year preceding the French Revolution. We shall understand him better, and judge him more charitably, if we remember the tainted stock from which he sprang. His father was a dissipated spendthrift of unspeakable morals, his mother was a Scotch heiress, passionate and imbalanced. The father deserted his wife after squandering her fortune, and the boy was brought up by the mother who alternately petted and abused him. In his eleventh year the death of a grand uncle left him heir to Newstead Abbey and to the baronial title of one of the oldest houses in England. He was singularly handsome, and a lameness resulting from a deformed foot lent a suggestion of pathos to his makeup. All this, with his social position, his pseudo-heroic poetry, and his dissipated life, over which he contrived to throw a veil of romantic secrecy, made him a magnet of attraction to many thoughtless young men and foolish women who made the downhill path both easy and rapid to one whose inclinations led him in that direction. Naturally he was generous, and easily led by affection. He island therefore, largely a victim of his own weakness and of unfortunate surroundings, at school at Harrow, and in the university at Cambridge. Byron led an unbalanced life, and was more given to certain sports from which he was not debarred by lameness, than to books and study. His school life, like his infancy, is sadly marked by vanity, violence, and rebellion against every form of off.